Thank you for listening to the Austin Connection podcast. The Austin Connection is also a free newsletter and community on Substack. Check it out at austinconnection.substack.com. See you there. Muslim romance, the thing that I'm interested in, it's it can be love that's found with another Muslim person, with another person of color. It can be love that is found with someone who isn't Muslim and who isn't, you know, and, and it could be uh, perhaps an LGBTQ exploration of this. I want all of the stories. I think we need to have all of these stories that show that the Muslim experience in North America, the Muslim experience globally is not a monolith. My experience as someone who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s um, in a more conservative Muslim family is going to be different than someone who's growing up, you know, even in my neighboring country of the United States. The author Usma Jalaluddin is well known in the Jane Austen world for her retelling of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. The book Aisha at Last puts Lizzie Bennett or Aisha in a large Muslim family in the Scarborough neighborhood of Toronto, where she's navigating complicated cousins, domineering matriarchs, and the rituals of arranged marriage, all while hoping to find the time to follow her ambitions for poetry. This is the Austin Connection. I'm Plain Jane. Uzma Jalaladeen herself is also extremely busy. When she's not writing novels, teaching high school, and parenting, Uzma Jalaladeen writes a column for the Toronto Star about education, family, and life. It's called Samosas and Maple Syrup. Her latest novel is Hana Khan Carries On. It's been optioned for the screen by Amazon Studios and Mindy Kaling. In our conversation with Uzma Jalaluddin, she tells me here how she discovered Jane Austen at the local library in the Toronto neighborhood she grew up in, Scarborough, also the setting for both of her novels, Aisha at Last and Hanukkah Carries On. Here's an excerpt from our conversation with Uzma Jalaluddin. I was, I am and was a voracious reader. Uh, growing up, I was constantly in the library. Like I was that kid who uh, the high school that I went to was right across the street from a, a, a large public library. And so during lunch breaks after school, I would just head over to the library and borrow books and hang out there. And I just study there. I would just basically live there. And uh, even my school library have, of course, had a pretty good collection of books. And that's really where that would, I was among my people when I was in the library. And was that in uh, Scarborough? Yeah. Yeah, Toronto. That's okay. right. It was in Scarborough. Uh, it's the, the the Cedarbury Library. If any of your listeners are from Toronto, uh, very large lar- lar- large uh, building. And shout out to uh, <laughs> libraries and librarians. <laughs> oh my God! Hashtag library love. I have so much love, <laughs> and I think so many writers can can relate to this, right? Like you become a writer out of a sense of re- out of a love of reading. And I think I was I was a teenager. I must have been fifteen or sixteen years old, and I heard about Jane Austen, and I was one of those kids that just was like, I want to read all the classics. Like, I'm really interested. I'm going to try everything. I'm going to try reading Dickens and, you know, the the Russian novels and Anna Karenina and let me try uh, Shakespeare and all of this thing. And so I heard about Jane Austen, uh, you know, of course, the Bronte sisters. Anyways, uh, so I picked up Pride and Prejudice and I read it and I and I think I remember like the language was uh, it felt very old fashioned to me uh, mm-hmm. and it took me a while to get through it and I, I did read it and then I remember after I because it takes a while especially as a teenage girl for it to sort of pick up right and um, and I really enjoyed it and then there was something about that book that just stuck with me and I kept going back to it and rereading it 
and I'm a kid of the I'm a child of the 90s. So when the 1995 A&E special came out, you know, I got the box set and I would watch it. My mom watched it with me. It was this thing that we both really enjoy doing. And uh, I think I've said this before multiple times, but the books that you read when you're young, especially at those formative ages, uh, the ones that you love, they just stay with you. Those stories just stay with you. And I feel like Jane Austen and specifically Pride and Prejudice, and I did go on further and read all of her novels, have traveled with me throughout my life. Uh, and uh, I'm so glad that they have because they came out, the story of my version, my take on Elizabeth and uh, Darcy uh, came out in Aisha at last. And, and that's a book that has brought me so much joy uh, sharing it with the world, writing it and all of the things that have come afterwards. It's It's been truly a privilege. I love the way you say that, you know, Jane Austen travels with you through life. That is something that really brings people, Jane Austen readers, together, too, because we kind of have fellow travelers traveling with Jane Austen through life when we have this community, which is cool. Yeah. But I know that, um, Uzma, from hearing you talk with Janeite communities and reading some of your interviews as well, that you really see it, it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to see yourself as a writer first and then the genre romance the retellings kind of come second. So if uh, it seems like you were writing Aisha at last and those characters were kind of taking shape and the story was taking shape and you realized there's an element of pride and prejudice in Jane Austen in this, which isn't surprising. Um, can you tell us how you ended up with a retelling? Yes, I, I've my first novel took me a really long time to write. And then it's probably just a function of the fact that I'm, I'm a busy person. I'm, I'm a high school teacher. I also have two young boys. And when I started writing this book in 2010, um, I knew that it was going to be a long marathon. And, and the book wasn't published until 2018. So it, it took me about seven years uh, for, for the entire book to, to uh, kind of take take place. And it wasn't until my fourth or fifth draft that I gave the book to a friend of mine. And she she pointed out that this has a lot of the elements of uh, Pride and Prejudice. Specifically, she was pointing out the fact that I seem to have a Mr. Darcy character in Khalid, um, an Elizabeth Bennet character in Aisha, and a Mr. Wickham character in Tharik. And I, I thought, oh my goodness, I, I didn't even <laughs> see it. And that's the ironic thing. I, I mean, I was writing a book and I was leaning into these tropes, these well-known characters that I love yes. and I didn't see it. And I made a very deliberate choice and it, it was her suggestion, but it was also something that I decided to lean into. I thought I'm a complete unknown writer. Here I am sitting in you know, Markham, Ontario, writing this book. No one's heard of me. I wasn't writing for the star at this, at this time either, uh, a high school teacher. and. Uh, on top of that, I'm writing about these unapologetically Muslim characters from, um, as you said, like so deep inside the community that it feels like all I'm talking about are Muslim characters. Who's going to give me a chance? Remember, this was like 2014, right? Um, mm -hmm. Who's going to give me a chance? Nobody. So let me do something that uh, pays homage to a story that I love, which is Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and also uh, turn it and use it for my own devices because that story I think really resonates with South Asian communities to this day, even though the book itself was written over 200 years ago. And so that's what I did. I reread for the, I don't know, dozenth time or more uh, Pride and Prejudice. And I picked out the pieces that I thought would really translate well. And I went about and I rewrote my book and it, it's, it felt like I should have done that from the beginning because it would have saved <laughs> me years of drafting because that's what the book was trying to be. And I just didn't see it. Well, and it's it's helpful to have some scaffolding for your imagination to just go wild within, but yes. to have some scaffolding that'll just kind of hold you together yes. as you go. Um, so that does make sense. 
And you're saying something, Uzma, really profound here in a way, making me realize that the the stories of Jane Austen and the Jane Austen community, not to overstate their influence, but can provide access to voices, provide an audience, provide access, and to provide a way for diverse voices. Um, you've said something really interesting in the Toronto Star. You, you talked about how the challenge that you felt like and was in front of you to get your story and the, the story of this family, of these characters, in the public eye and published. And you have written in the Toronto Star, the lack of diversity in the arts has harmed me in ways I'm only starting to untangle. Can you tell us a little bit about the lack of diversity in the arts and how and what a challenge that has been for you? When I wrote that piece in particular, I pitched it to my editor as a way for me to sort of unpack this uh, and, and, and almost have this as a uh, it, it was a battle cry. It was an encouragement for parents, my fellow parents uh, who are maybe first-generation immigrants, uh, unlike me, or, or maybe are like me, second-generation immigrants, meaning my parents immigrated, my children are uh, they're, you know, uh, so far removed from their home countries uh, to encourage those children to go into the creative arts. Because I feel like in Asian communities in particular, there's such a push to have kids really establish themselves. And I'm speaking, forgive me, I'm speaking very generally here. And, and I am speaking from a Canadian um, immigrant perspective here as well. It could be different in other places. Uh, but I, I feel as an educator uh, who teaches a lot of Asian students, there's such a push for children to go into, you know, traditional professional fields. So to go into the sciences, to go into the STEM fields, the math fields, engineering, art, and, uh, and, and art is sort of not even considered important. And yet art is the basis of culture and culture is what keeps our society going. And the people who are making the art are very rarely the same ones who represent those that same Asian uh, immigrant subset that I'm talking about, or even any marginalized community. Things are changing now, but certainly when I was growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, um, there was very limited representation of uh, immigrants, of South Asians, mm -hmm. and definitely of Muslims. And the types of stereotypes that I was exposed to as a Muslim woman uh, were, quite frankly, very toxic. And one of the impacts of that is that I didn't consider myself, even though I clearly was interested in the creative fields. I've been writing since I was a kid. I've been reading my entire life. Uh, I've, I have an aptitude for this and a talent for this. And yet I never thought that I belonged in this industry. I didn't even know how to go about inserting myself into this industry uh, beyond maybe, uh, maybe I should be a journalist and maybe I should you know, go into, go into that field. And instead I became a high school teacher because I knew that you know, it's a very stable job. I, I like people, I like kids. Okay, let me go and do that. But I think I was telling my husband this, I, I, I'm like, I'm, I started too late. Like I, I started in the creative arts as an adult, as a, as a mother, all of these responsibilities were already there. And so here I am in the position of juggling, like, I don't know, five or six different jobs <laughs> and having a completely packed calendar. Um, and so I want parents to know that A, there are opportunities in the creative fields. There is money to be had, to be made in this yeah, you have to hustle a lot and it's certainly not an easy place to be, but the impact uh, on culture can be so vast, so important as well. Uh, I get emails even now from people, all, from people all over the world. I just had a letter from a young woman who lives in France and who said, you know, she read my book. Unfortunately, Aisha Alas has not been 
translated into French. Uh, but she she read my book in English and she said she has never seen these types of stories represented where you have Muslim characters who are just living their life, who are falling in love, who are having funny adventures and dealing with some serious things, but also some lovely things. Um, and how important it was to her, how much it meant for her to see this type of representation. And uh, I think what it is, is for so long, marginalized communities have been erased. And like what you what we were just talking about, what you, the point that you made uh, really beautifully earlier about the retellings, the way that Jane Austen can be re reconfigured to represent um, different communities is really interesting. And it's actually been a conversation, I think, in on Twitter, you know, about all the different diverse retellings and should yeah. should should they even happen in the first place, right? Um, which is a different conversation to have, <laughs> but uh, but I think it's all interesting, and I think think it comes back to the idea that uh, there was nothing for so long, and I I know what it's like to feel like my stories, the things that I think are important, uh, are just never represented on the page or on the screen. That's really powerful. It's wonderful to hear. You've also said somewhere I've read that you've said you don't want to be an inspiration or a pioneer. I totally get where that's coming from because <laughs> as someone in the journalism community, pitching ideas sometimes and being interested in um, particularly in Muslim writers and communities, uh, you do get put in a box into inspiration or pioneer. But I just have to say, Uzma, it is inspiring to hear your story about how you didn't feel there was a place for you and you forged a place. I feel like that's something that Jane Austen characters are doing. They feel left out of the conversation, uh, marginalized, and they find their way in. And I've, it seems like that's one thing that's adaptable about her stories. And this is a conversation that comes up a lot. But you say something really powerful here, too. We need to talk about romance. So you, you mentioned also, to quote you again in the Toronto Star, because it's a great quote, that people of color need more romance. Yes. What do you mean by that? And how does how does this come about when it comes to that representation, that lack of representation or that negative representation and romance? I think the definition of romance needs to be expanded, A. Mm. Uh, also, there seems to be a bit of a renaissance happening in the romance community, which I'm I'm completely here for. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in Romance Landia, as it's called online, which is the, the wider community of romance writers, um, consumers, creators, etc. cetera, uh, there's so many kind of up-to-date conversations that have been happening over the years and I, I've been I'm a I'm a newcomer to this I've probably been I've been a lifelong romance reader but I've kind of stumbled on this community after I became a writer uh, and it's been fascinating to watch the types of conversations that are happening about race and identity and retellings and consent and just acceptance and tolerance uh, um, uh, in, in in this very large uh, genre yeah but let me just interject really quickly and say, you said something else really powerful about that art is important. And as a journalist, I also feel that way. I feel like that's why I feel arts journalism and humanities journalism is important because I feel like, you know, journalism is the first draft of history, right? You are you are writing that. You're doing journalism in the Toronto Star. Um, but to me, the interesting part and the the heavy, impactful part of our history is not just what happened, but how we processed what happened, how we reacted to what happened, how communities and how individuals 
felt about what happened and yeah. what we thought about what happened. And to me, that's where the art and humanities journalism is. So I totally hear you. You said romance should be reevaluated. I agree. And so if you're looking at art and humanities and the stories we tell, there's nothing more important right now. Yeah. There's nothing more important in the last year and a half than how we process that. And that's why that's one reason I put a journal, uh, a microphone on the Jane Austen discussions, mm -hmm. because the Jane Austen discussions involved, you know, Ibi Zoboy and Uzma Jalaluddin and and so many people. So yeah. Sonia Kamal. Sonia Kamal, yep. Making the stories of Jane Austen relevant mm -hmm. to today yeah. and adapting them to today. So I think that's not only okay, I think it's what is keeping it alive. And I'm also kind of quoting Damian Scott here. She says it very beautifully. She says, she doesn't want to be, Jane Austen doesn't want to be on a pedestal. She wants to be among the people. Yes. And I just thought it's such a great way to put that. That is such a, that is such a good insight. And, and I felt that, I've always felt that. And I think that's why um, Jane Austen has kind of, as I said, traveled with me all my life, as opposed to maybe some of the other classics that I read, where I felt like they were more products of their time. And I think Jane Austen, for whatever reason, maybe it's because of that sly wit, the satire, the uh, the description of a regular everyday life, middle class life, really, uh, and of course, upper class life, that that is just so relatable. And um, I love what you're saying about art. I, I completely agree. And my take on it is that um, the art that has been made for decades has only ever focused on the white experience. And yet that has been an incomplete, if, if journalism is the first draft of history and art, the art that is made is um, answering the questions of how do we feel about this? We haven't been hearing from a very large segment of our population. And if we have been hearing about them, those voices have been oftentimes dismissed um, because, and, and in all sorts of subtle ways, because those aren't the, they haven't been traditionally the books that have been made into TV shows and movies, uh, the books that are nominated for awards unless, you know, some kind of, you know, uh, artist of color is being lauded that year. Uh, and certainly, and I can speak speak of, of this from the commercial side, uh, commercial fiction is really where we have these conversations about what are we obsessed with? What are we interested in? Like the, what's the hottest Netflix show? Uh, that's where culture is created, really. That's, that's the things that we're kind of thinking about. It's not it's more than a momentary blip, right? It's kind of, it's the, um, for instance, like the, the the trend in dystopian, the vampire fiction, all of this said something about what what we're thinking about as a, as a culture and as a society. And a lot of those stories were written by white authors. And if there are people of color, or if there are Black, uh, Indigenous people of color in those stories, um, the creators are still largely white authors. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not a proponent of... Uh, uh, censorship or, or, or anything like that. But I think we have to recognize that there has been um, traditionally and culturally speaking, um, the effect of this has been an erasure of uh, marginalized voices. And so I feel like things are changing slowly, very, very slowly, but they are changing. Uh, and I'm interested in hearing those voices. And so part of that is romance. What does love yes. look like? to bring it back full circle. <laughs> yeah, we interrupted ourselves, but there you go, Yuzma. <laughs> I was going to bring it back to like, and in fact, to romance, but I just will say, 
Muslim romance. Yes, um, which is something that is very rarely, if ever, explored uh, unless it is through the through the prism of a culture. So it may be like Indian romance, and that's Bollywood, uh, which of course is in itself very stereotypical and very um, one facet of Indian life, not even like a very large facet, or a Middle Eastern romance, and it's always filtered through. Other issues, uh, for instance, I, I've talked about this before. Like it's uh, okay, but it's romance, but it's patriarchy. So how are how is the main character? Uh, it's always the same type of storyline. Uh, the main character, if, if it's a woman, is pressed, uh, has to break away from the from the bonds of her family and has to basically give up everything about her culture and herself and embrace the wider, you know, uh, usually uh, North American Western type of society. And in this way, she is freed. There's always um, kind of a white savior complex uh, type of storyline, or there is a rejection of her own community, but Muslim romance, the thing that I'm interested in is a little bit more nuanced than that. It's It can be love that's found with another Muslim person, with another person of color. It can be love that is found with someone who isn't Muslim and who isn't, you know, and, and it could be uh, perhaps an LGBTQ exploration of this. I want all of the stories. I think we need to have all of these stories that show that the Muslim experience in North America, the Muslim experience globally is not a monolith. My experience as someone who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s um, in a more conservative Muslim family is going to be different than someone who's growing up, you know, even in my neighboring country of the United States. Uh, but the story is that I write I, I usually have two South Asian. My both both books have featured two South Asian, two Muslim characters and their faith is just the background information about them. They're not having conversations necessarily about, should I be Muslim or should I not? Should I take off my hijab? Um, will my father disown me? They come from loving families. They know who they are and they're secure uh, in that identity. And uh, the romance really is about other things, you know? And uh, because I write, I write rom-coms, uh, they tend to be more situational comedies than anything else. I love that. And it's something, as you said, your characters are unapologetically Muslim. Mm -hmm. And that's really fun to see. You're listening to the Austin Connection. We're talking with writer Uzma Jalaluddin about her novels and about life and Jane Austen. Her novel, Aisha at Last, is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice set in a large, noisy Muslim family in Toronto. In the next part of the conversation, we talk about Muslim romance and compare Pride and Prejudice's Darcy to Aisha at Last's hero, Khalid. Both characters are about appearance versus reality, and Khalid is judged for his traditional Muslim appearance, or as Uzma Jalaluddin says it, his Muslimness. She says she intentionally challenges her readers by giving us a hero who looks like a stereotypical villain thanks to media representations of Muslims. She hopes her Muslim romance turns these images upside down. Back to the conversation. So let me, we could unpack a lot in this Muslim romance, and I have a lot of questions for you. But first, we have to just talk about your Darcy character. So so your your leading man, yes. Khalid, yes. is like Darcy, and he really is like Darcy. But it's funny because um, he he is like Darcy. They're both stiff, 
somewhat formal and awkward, handsome, uh, a little um, emotionally aloof yes. for various reasons. But Khalid has a very good reason, and it's better than Darcy's reason. <laughs> Khalid is a part of a traditional Islamic community and following the rules and interest in the rules. And Darcy's reason, as far as I can tell, is just that he's socially awkward. <laughs> so it's, it's in some ways, your, your Khalid and your Darcy has much more of a sort of societal underpinning uh, stronger underpinning away than Darcy, where you're just kind of left at sea, like Elizabeth thinking, what's going on with him? Um, and then here's Aisha, who doesn't have that question. She knows exactly what's going on with him, and she's got to work through it. So this is so much fun for, as you say, a situational comedy. Can you talk about Khalid as Darcy? Khalid is the reason I wrote, and, and I didn't give up on Aisha at last. I, I have to first put that out there, because he is the character that for some reason, and this this rarely happens for writers, but he just like burst into a ma my imagination completely fully formed. Uh, I just knew who he was, I knew what he wanted. I just completely understood him. I can't emphasize how rare this is as someone who's trying to write their third book. And I don't know anything about anything right now. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just very rare. But uh, when I finally, because I said, as I said, I, I came to the realization that I was writing Pride and Prejudice late in my drafting, when I finally put that together, that Holland was Mr. Darcy, it just made so much sense. Because what I'm trying to do through Aisha at last is to, you know, A, write a really fun entertainment book, an uh, entertaining book that my readers will, will enjoy. Uh, but I'm also trying to engage in a conversation about appearance versus reality. So here is this guy. And I think that's what Jane Austen is trying to do as well. And in so many of her books, right? Here is yeah. this person who is judged from the moment that you see him because of the way that he dresses, because of the way that he acts and the assumptions that the reader themselves might have about this type of person. Uh, and Darcy is the same way, right? He is an aristocratic man. Everyone thinks that he's proud and he's disdainful. That says more about their own insecurities, though admittedly he is quite rude uh, in the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, that's a that's a trope. Classic that's hero, classic of, hero. Yeah. And and mm -hmm. Hollywood is too. Hollywood in, in his own way is awkward and bumbling and rude. Um, but on top of the regular social awkwardness of a classic romantic hero, uh, we have that layer of his Muslimness. And his Muslimness comes out in very overt symbols that make the people surrounding him very uncomfortable because he is really comfortable in, in the way that he embraces his faith. Um, I purposely made him almost like a cartoonish Muslim guy. Like he was wearing a long white robe to work and like a skull cap. He had like an un unkempt beard. And I did all this on purpose. Like I made him an extra on Homeland. And yet I decided to read <laughs> in my book because I wanted to throw this in my reader's face and the Muslims and the non-Muslim readers. Like, this is, this is your villain. This is the guy that you've been trained to be afraid of. Look at how hot he is. Look at how sexy he is. Look at how romantic he is. I will make you fall in love with him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and in that way, I had a lot of fun deconstructing the Muslim man archetype uh, because I live with Muslim men. I'm raising two Muslim men. Uh, I've been married to a Muslim man for nearly 20 years. So he does, he refuses to grow a beard. I keep trying to get him to get <laughs> grow one. <laughs> He's not interested. Um, I have a brother, I have, um, um, a loving father. I have uncles and I never saw the men that I interact with on a daily 
basis who are Muslim really adequately represented in the wholeness of their person and their humanity. Uh, and I wanted to correct that. When it comes to Muslim romance, you uh, have some interesting developments in Aisha at last. One thing that's interesting is that a, I don't know if you would call her white character, Caucasian character, if that's what she is, Clara. She is, yep. Okay, and her boyfriend, Rob, is super sluggish about proposing and he can't get his act together. And uh, Khalid, our hero, helps Clara negotiate a proposal and a dowry. And I don't know what you were wanting to want, wanting readers to get from this, um, if anything, Uzma, but it had me wondering whether, and, you know, humanists, even humanists and secular humanists sort of find this, whether there are some things in traditional Muslim cultures and religious cultures that you think are helpful to women. That seemed to me what was being depicted. And if that that is something that's probably worth unpacking, that complicated aspect of rituals and the rituals that we all embark on, whether we like it or not, they're in our culture. Yeah, I, I never thought of it that way. I, I, to be honest, I just thought it would be really funny to have the white girl <laughs> get a rishta from her boyfriend who she's been living with for five years. And uh, and the guy who who sends her the rishta is this bearded Muslim man. <laughs> I, I just, in my head, right? Because I have to uh, keep going and, and, and these jokes just keep me going. Um, but I think, <laughs> I think there's a lot, there's a lot of merit in what you said. Um, yeah, of course, cultures can learn from each other and and gain certain uh, positives and negatives. Like as much as I've learned, uh, you know, from from my wider Western upbringing in Canada, like I've I've picked up, I'm I'm just as Canadian as I am South Asian as I am Muslim, right? There's there's so much about all of these cultures that I've learned from, and and hopefully other people can pick up from from this. And really, what Khalid is exhorting Rob to do uh, is say why aren't you having this conversation? It's very obvious that Clara has been trying to hint to you for a very long time. Why aren't you picking up the hint? It's time to, you know, uh, figure this out. You're going to lose her. And if, if that is the consequence for your inattention, that's on you. But here, let's just let's just be completely upfront about this. And I think this is, as someone who is very direct, I really appreciate this about uh, South Asian marital practices. And, and I have to point out that the Rishta process is, is South Asian. It's not really a Muslim thing. Um, okay. Other other cultures uh, who are Muslim, they might have like a different marriage, m- marital custom, but uh, the, it's it's a very South Asian practice to send a Rishta, uh, which is a proposal, like an arranged marriage proposal. Um, I really appreciate the directness of it. There's always a goal. It's It's not like we're not just casually dating. We're dating because we want to know if we can build a life together. And if that life together involves marriage, because that's what you want to do, that's fine. But like this, this isn't just we're seeing each other and let's see where this goes. No, no, there's none of that. <laughs> it's there's a deadline within a certain amount of time. You got to figure this out. Um, and there's it's every both parties know. And that's what Khalid brings to the table here. In a in a way, he's I think refreshingly direct, and that really appeals to Clara because she's she's probably been in a situation where she's been you know she she loves Rob. I think Rob's a bit of a dolt personally, but she loves <laughs> Rob and, and she wants him mm-hmm. to build a life with him. She can see his other good qualities, and yet he's not stepping up. So Khalid, in his uh-huh. just directness, like what's the point of being together unless you make you make this a, a formal thing. You're standing up in front of your family and friends and declaring to the world that you are going to going in it together uh, for the long run. 
uh, and he just puts it to Rob and Rob says, okay. <laughs> and then and, you know, <laughs> and Rob will never change. That's the way Rob is always going to be is somebody's going to have to be strong and like basically put it on the table. But let me go back to one thing because I was able to, as you know, read Aisha at last because I've been tweeting about Nanny's chai. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, like in a crazy way. And I, I literally, it literally has been something that's got me through the pandemic. Like Amazing. to this day, I will wake up and I'll be like, the chai being on the stove. And by the way, for listeners, this is a very simple, it's a recipe that's in the back of Aisha at last. And that's what I started with. But now I just kind of wing it. Basically, what I hadn't realized is that really delicious chai is basically just milk and boiled water with couple of tea bags in it boiling and then just throw in some spices and and that's it we've got nani's recipe there is that your actual grandmother's recipe no no not at all (laughs) ironically my maternal grandmother didn't even drink tea she was a tea (laughs) drinker she drank coffee (laughs) she just like just get me a mcdonald's coffee seriously my mom my parents uh however drink tea and i i myself am a tea addict um and and i started drinking coffee too so i i love my caffeine i and sometimes i just get this craving for chai actually that recipe is from my cousin samina i have to give her uh props she's the one who who gave me uh that recipe i love her chai so yeah that's where that's okay about. fantastic yeah i love it too and i do i feel like i have the recipe almost memorized but i also just tell people just pinch of cinnamon and you know that's it in there and you're good yeah anyway aisha and last one thing that i had in my notes um uzma but that kind of made me laugh when I looked back and saw this in my notes because I read it quite a while ago was um, we need to be talking more about Khadija. <laughs> you mentioned Khadija, <laughs> the wife of the Prophet Muhammad. That's right. right. And can you tell us about her and why she has an appearance in Aisha at last? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I growing up, I went to Sunday school and, you know, all, all of those, those type of uh, stories that you learn, you know, like I'm sure uh, Christian children are, are taught Bible stories and Muslim kids are taught Muslim stories. Uh, so one of the stories that we're always told is that Prophet Muhammad was married to uh, his, his, his first wife because she, she died and he later remarried uh, was a woman named Khadija. And Khadija really liked uh, Muhammad and uh, peace be upon him. And she she actually liked him so much that she proposed marriage to him. And she was 15 years older than him. And actually he was uh, one of the traders like that she hired. So he, she, he was actually working for her, but she was really impressed by his honesty and his trustworthiness and his authenticity. And so as you do, she was just straight up and said, I'm, I'm interested in you. Are you interested in me? Let's get married. And he accepted. And the the tradition goes that he was extremely happy with his with his wife, even though she was he was 25 and she was 40. They were married for 15 years before she died. Uh, When he received revelation from God, as the tradition, the mythology goes, uh, she was the first person who accepted Islam, the first person who supported him and believed him and was his, uh, you know, partner in all things like an equal partner. And in fact, a more successful partner, because she was the one who uh, was the hard headed businesswoman who, who was kind of running things. Um, and I just thought this story is so, it is, is not well known. I don't think by a lot of people who aren't familiar with the Muslim faith. Uh, and it just goes to show you that there's so much emphasis on 
kind of like the darkness of the way that Muslims are portrayed around the world, that there's no, there's no room for these lighthearted stories. And that's really what I wanted to get across in Aisha Alas. Like Muslims can fall in love too. We're, uh, we need our romance stories. We need our love stories just as much as any other community, maybe even more because we've had so much darkness heaped on us um, by the, the actions of some people who, who have done extremely violent things, but also uh, decisions of other people who have portrayed Muslims over and over again uh, as violent extremists. That was writer Uzma Jalaluddin talking with us at the Austin Connection. Her novel, Hanukkah Carries On, has been optioned for the screen by Amazon Studios at Mindy Kaling. We'll keep an eye on all this. And Uzma Jalaluddin tells us she's working right now on a third novel, which she suspects might be a retelling of Jane Austen's Persuasion. Thanks for being with us here at the Austin Connection. I'm Plain Jane. You can find more conversations like these at the Austin Connection podcast on Spotify, on Apple, and at austinconnection.substack.com. Stay safe, stay well, and join us there. Hang in there. Enjoy the teaching. Uh, you too. <laughs> thank you. And and the writing. Yeah, definitely. Thank okay. you so much. This was so much fun. Have a great day.